So I hope you have a Bible. If you do, or any ways to access Scripture, you can look at a friend's phone. Galatians 5 is where we're going to be. And I'll just tell you, we're hopping around a little bit tonight. We're looking at joy. Every time that I get the opportunity to speak somewhere, I never want to assume that everyone in the room is a believer, knows who Jesus is, has a relationship with Jesus. Some of you may be here for the food and for the friendship and just kind of sit here for the faith time. And just let me tell you, we're glad you're here, right? Hang out as long as you want, right? We'll pray that the Lord does a profound work in and through your life, through the preaching of the word so that you might know the joy we're about to speak of. But if you're a believer in the room, there are two things that I know to be true about your life. Two things. There's certainly more, but I'll give you two. The first is this, that you recognize that the holy God of the universe has looked down upon sinful men and women of whom we count ourselves, who turned their back in defiance against him and the good gifts he'd given them, and instead of looking down upon us, in anger and anger alone, looked down upon his creation in love, and he proved that he loved his creation by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die a sinner's death so that sinners who place their faith and trust in him and in him alone would have life they don't deserve, everlasting, with God forever. God has sent Jesus the greatest act of love to reconcile and bring close people far from him. And if you're a believer in this room, you know that personally. You have a relationship with that God, not because of how great or how worthy you are, but because of how great he is. And despite your unworthiness, his reception of you by the gift of sacrifice of his son. You believe that. You know that. Anyone who believes in Jesus, by the way, can be saved. Anyone. Love to talk with you about that later. Second thing that I know true of you is this, that you still wrestle with the desires of your old life that you decided to leave when you followed Jesus. You still wrestle with them. In fact, one of the, one of the markers, I would even say, of being a Christian is that you're wrestling. You know your old life does not bring the joy you thought it could, and you're wrestling. The war for your soul, because of point one, has already been won, but the daily battle against sin and temptation's lie rages on, right? You know that to be true. Boy, I'd be lying to you if I said, I don't know that to be true. Jesus has come to give you eternal life with him. But he is also, while not offering you an easy life, has come that you might have abundant life in him. And so that wrestle I am speaking of is not a wrestle for eternal life. That has already been paid in full. It's a wrestle for the abundant life God desires for you by consciously putting to death the sin that still remains, the sin that taunts you with temporary pleasure, hiding from you the fact that it will steal your joy. 
Here's what Paul says in Galatians 5, which is kind of the foundation of the fruits of the Spirit. The desires of the flesh, verse 17, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is a part of Paul's testimony in Romans 7. My goodness, I can't stop sinning. It's tough. I don't, I don't understand. Like I keep doing what I don't want to do. I'm like a dog that goes back to vomit. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He ends with in Romans chapter 7. You know what he says? Praise be to Jesus Christ who will save me from this body of death. And so you're in this wrestle, and it's a wrestle for love. It's a wrestle, I would even argue, for joy. The desire of the flesh are the desires of your old life. The desires from your first birth. And they are waging war with the desires of the spirit, which is the desires of your new life. And the fight between the two of them is a fight for joy. Joy. Where is it really found? I mean, think back to the garden, right? What does Satan say to, to, to Eve, the serpent slithering in the garden? Did God really say? And then he says, he's lying to you. That's, why, that's what he's saying. Did God really say? He surely did not say you would die. He's lying to you. You're not going to die. In fact, what actually will happen is you'll be like him. He's holding something back from you. And she goes, yeah, there's a lot of joy that can be found from that apple. Whatever you think the fruit was. There's a lot of joy to be found there. The problem was, it was fool's gold. Sin cannot satisfy. You were not designed for it ultimately you were designed to worship God and so it cannot satisfy why do I say that the fight between the flesh your old self and the fight between the spirit your new self is a fight for joy because the works of the flesh that is the sin talked about in Galatians 5 which I won't read but you saw while coming very naturally to us do not lead to life but lead to Rather, the depression of our mind, the destruction of our relationships, discontentment in our life, and ultimately, if lived in, as it says, the damnation of our soul. I mean, their embrace, sin's embrace, is worse than a backstabbing best friend. The perception is happiness. The reality is death. And so, focusing on producing fruit before we focus on what it means to produce fruit and specifically joy, we must say this is a fight against the flesh. We must fight with our faith to walk, sorry, we must fight with our flesh to walk in the Spirit. How? How do you fight against your flesh? In this regard, do you just say, okay, um, joy, I want it, I need it, I'm going to go after joy. Peace, I want it, I need it, I'm going to go after peace. Gentleness, and so on, I'm going to go after gentleness. 
You might be surprised by this. But I don't think you first focus on the fruit. I don't think that should be your route. With a literal plant, so you think of the illustration, of course, is a plant, right? It's got roots, soil, grows up, bears fruit, right? I'm not a green thumb, is that how we call that? But I know that's true, okay, right? Um, with a literal plant, you don't grow fruit by focusing on the fruit for a season. It's not even there, right? Fruit happens naturally when the roots are really deep and healthy, soaking in water, right? The same is true in our spiritual lives. And unfortunately, some Christians, like, I mean, we, we, we're prone to often do this. Some Christians approach spiritual growth like stapling roses to a dead rose bush, right? From afar, it, it looks healthy. You might think that rose bush is nice. But stapling roses on there doesn't fix the real problem. In the same way, you won't grow spiritually or bear the fruit God calls you to by simply trying to add love, add joy, add peace, and everything else to your life. You can only do it by driving your roots deep into Christ. In fact, the more you embrace his love and his promise in the gospel, I would argue the more spiritual fruits will appear naturally in your life. So tonight, as we talk about joy, you might think, you know, come to think of it, I need more joy in my life. How can I focus upon joy? How can I make joy this week's weekly challenge? Write it on the board, right? Put it in my app. How can I find joy in the little things? How can I put a quarter in the complaining jar like the more Christian version of this swear jar, right? But here's where I would encourage you not to do that, at least not merely. It's not that the Christian shouldn't pursue joy per se. By all means we should. But instead, I think our text would plead with us to bear the kind of fruit bears the necessity of walking by the Spirit. Verse 16. Focusing on walking by the Spirit to not become licentious rebels. What do I mean by that? Saying we can do whatever we want. I can live however I want. Grace has set me free. I'm free to do whatever I want. Walk by the Spirit so that we don't Veer to licentiousness. I think he says in verse 18 that we should be led by the Spirit so that we don't veer the opposite direction towards a sort of religious legalism. Thinking we're better than everyone else who isn't as pious or as theologically astute as us. <laughs> if they only know how to parse that. Right? So I contend that the fruit of the Spirit is the character of God reflected in the lives of those who walk with him. And therefore, genuine spiritual joy, like any of the other fruits, cannot be manifested in your mind, manufactured by a change in your schedule. They cannot be produced by an outward change of habit or a system of self-improvement. In fact, I submit to you that fruit is born from fellowship. What do I mean by fruit is born from fellowship? It's just like a cool phrase, right? What does it mean to walk by and be led by the Spirit? Well, according to Scripture, where does the Spirit 
lead us? Okay, where is the Spirit going? What is the third person of the Trinity's role in the life of a Christian to point us to Jesus? We know that. Acts chapter 2, to know him, to know Jesus. That's one of the Spirit's roles, to convict our hearts, to open up our eyes to Jesus, to behold him and see him as good. And the second thing, to know the truth, how to walk according to his ways and enjoy his truth for our lives, John 16. So if the Spirit's role is to point us to Jesus and help us walk with Jesus, what if walking in step with the Spirit is pursuing and yearning for the presence of God in our lives? Wanting to be more like Christ, seeing Him, beholding Him, yearning to be like Him. According to the Bible, we've been indwelled as believers with the Holy Spirit. When you trusted Jesus, God sent his Spirit into your life. That's a reality that, according to the Old Testament, Moses and David prayed for. But they did not have, not entirely, not fully. That is a promise given through a prophet in the Old Testament named Joel, who said that God would pour out his Spirit on his people. An experience that no Old Testament saint could say they fully experienced as you do today. And the Holy Spirit is referred to in the book of Acts as the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Jesus. So what if walking in step with the Spirit is being in communion with Christ, pursuing His ways and pursuing His presence in our lives? Not only being like Him, but being with Him. Who do you tend to look like? Who you spend a lot of time around, right? You naturally become like those you've been around. Walking in the Spirit is pursuing and yearning for the presence, the work of Jesus in and through our lives. So what does that have to do with joy? I'm glad you asked. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 16, verse 11? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to be the most joyful person in the world? Be with Jesus. Know him. Spend time with him. Joy is produced by being in the presence of Jesus. It's produced by pursuing the presence of Jesus in your life. You want more joy? Don't try to rework your schedule. Pursue the presence of Jesus in your life. I mean, I don't know how to say it a fifth time. Pursuing the presence of Jesus equals a production of joy in and through your life. Being with him in his word and in prayer. Hearing from him from his word, speaking to him in prayer, being still and knowing that he is God. Joy. A lot of us are on a happiness quest. 
I think most people are probably in their lives on a happiness quest. I think you would agree with that. Yet even Christians oftentimes spend little time in Jesus' presence and his word in the stillness of the day, reflecting upon what he has done. And then, like, and I'm, I am here too. We wonder, like, why we're anxious and depressed and angry and apathetic and dissatisfied and disassociated with the world he's created. Maybe there's a link there. Like, our generation. I'm like, I'm. Uh, I think I'm. A, I'm a millennial. Y'all are probably. Generation Z, I would, I think. I don't know where the breakdown is. So I think you're Generation Z. I'm a millennial. But we'll just say both of our generations, I think we would agree, I am guilty of this, are electronically possessed. Okay? I, I'm not trying to like fire and brimstone at our culture for like staring at the phones all the time, but you know it to be true. And you know how dangerous it is. Like there are studies beyond studies, beyond studies. And uh, one that you might, a book you might read, Gene Twinge, iGen. It was written back in 2016. And even back then they knew basically that more screen time was one of the biggest causes of more loneliness in the life of an individual. They connected it back then. And I would argue that our screen time has significantly jumped, right? We know that we ought to disconnect. It's one area of a lack of joy in our life or a cause of a lack of joy, and we just can't disconnect because it's like, it's like the, the town square. And to not, to not be there is to like be a hermit, right? I don't want to be a hermit, right? We don't want to be the, that person. And I'm not arguing for you to be that person, by the way. But statistically, we are a lonely and anxious generation. And I, I would say here's one reason why. We consistently scroll through millions of things which then produce millions of thoughts affecting our serotonin and engaging every emotion all of the time. We are, as Bo Burnham, someone I probably shouldn't recommend from up here, prophetically called, um, when he was speaking of the internet, he said, the internet has caused us or caused our culture to make apathy a tragedy and boredom a crime. Oh, I can't be bored. And so I would say one of the least listened to probably commands of Jesus is to be still and know his God. Like, can you just be still? The need to be, I'll go on this just a little longer, the need to be constantly entertained can be a sort of prison. And a psychologically damaging one if what is entertaining us fluctuates between second videos of the giggle of a child, a preteen dancing in the room, a violent murder, all within the swipe of our finger, and when it ceases to cause us to flinch anymore. The truth of the matter is, Many of us, myself included, have little time with the Lord in comparison with everything else. And I believe this is one of the biggest reasons why we have little joy in our heart. 
Did you know that there have been studies done about spending time with Jesus and its effect of joy in your life? A recent study by the Center for Bible Engagement, polling 40,000 people in the U.S., ages 8 to 80, found that when we're in the Scripture four times a week, four times a week, something radical happens in our lives. Are you ready for the results? Feeling lonely drops 30%. 40,000 people. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships, marriage, and your relationship with your kids drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling uh, spiritually stagnant, which if if I'm honest, that's probably one of the things that we are most vulnerable in sharing, that we just feel spiritually stagnant sometimes. And you're in good company. The psalmist did often. So so don't think you're not saved or something like that because you're going through a rough patch. But I would just say, because being in the scripture four times a week, according to the study, a feeling of spiritual stagnation dropped 60%. So my argument is that joy is not to be a pursuit in and of itself. Jesus is. And he produces a sort of joy in his presence. In your presence, the psalmist says, there is fullness of joy. Not in my notes. Jesus, why did he come to earth? He came to earth to die on a cross for you. And because of the joy set before him, he endured it. If he can find joy in what everyone would else would say would be the least joyous a person could ever find joy, I think he can teach us about joy. The pursuit of God ought to be the pursuit of your life, and there you will find joy now and forever. In fact, it is in the pursuit of God and in the pleasure of walking with him that joy will be produced in your life. I would say our lack of joy is directly related to our lack of time with Jesus and vice versa. Our time with Jesus is directly related to our joy in him. And here's uh, your note taker. So, So why is that? The statistics say time with Jesus results in joy. Why? Well, Time with Jesus, I would assume most of the time, is time in his word, just like that, and time in prayer. And in time with Jesus, in his word, and in time in prayer, what are you reflecting upon? Well, you're reflecting upon the center of the Bible, the climax of all of human history, the cross of Christ. So what occasion do you have for joy? Well, I would say the finished work of Jesus' cross is the foundation for your joy. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Are you ready? Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight, our sin, that sin that talks about in Galatians 5. Let us lay it aside, which clings so closely, and let's run with endurance the wraith set before us. Looking to, again, where does he say your attention needs to be to do so? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What 
occasion do you have for joy? The better question, what occasion do you have for despair? He endured it for you with a smile on his face. I mean, not every moment, but joy in his heart. Knowing what it would accomplish in your life and for your eternity. Here is the reason for your joy, and I encourage you to write this down if you're a note taker, okay? I pray that in writing these truths down, that the the truths beneath the statements I'm about to speak would be like a ballast in your boat when the world gets shifty. Difficult. Ballast in the boat, okay, I had to Google that, okay? So a ballast in the boat is like the weight at the bottom. It keeps the boat afloat to not tip over. When the, when the storm rages on. I pray these truths would be like the ballast in your boat. Oh, believer, the price of your salvation has been paid for in full. In full. You have an occasion for joy. Oh, believer, your death is not the end and your eternity is sure. In fact, Revelation gives us a peek behind the curtain and says, if you're a believer in Jesus or will become a believer in Jesus, you have this like tablet that exists in heaven and your name's already there in pen. You have an occasion for joy. Your eternity is sure. And in the meantime, not only is the price of your salvation paid for in full, your death is not the end and your eternity is sure, ballast in your boat. In the meantime, you're provided for and protected by the controller of the universe. In the meantime, Matthew 6, don't you think he cares about the birds of the air who don't worry? Or don't you think he clothes the grass of the field? Oh, you have little faith. He cares for you. So so this is where just like a little bit of like rich, like theological truth is beautiful. God is sovereign over everything. Do you know what that means? He controls everything. God is providential and providentially cares for his people. You know what that means? That means that inside of the fact that God controls everything, he cares for you. And he's able to. He's able to. And he does. That's not the only thing in the meantime. The price of your salvation has been paid for in full. Your death is not the end. Your eternity is sure. In the meantime, you're provided for and protected by the control of the universe. What are trials in the meantime? But occasions for joy. Because they're allowed by God to mature you and prepare you for heaven. These are all verses where the word joy is used. So um, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that he gets to, they produce maturity. So God allows trials in your life to fit you for heaven and to mature you so that you don't put all of your stock here. It's like like Abraham and Isaac. God was testing Abraham's faith according to verse 1. I don't think Abraham knew that, but he passed the test. God took Abraham and took the one Greatest thing in his life, the promise of like salvation and future and hope for the world. He held Isaac in his arms as an old man waiting for a baby. And God said, I'm going to take that. And God, of course, did not substitute, eventually becomes Jesus in the future. But God, by his grace, might bring you to your wits end where you can hold on to nothing but him. And he'll be enough. 
Okay, the price of your salvation paid for in full. Your death's not the end, your eternity's sure. In the meantime, you're provided for and protected by the control of the universe. Your trials can be occasions for joy because they're allowed by God to mature you and prepare you for heaven. And lastly, in the meantime, you've been given gifts to enjoy. Every single one of you has been gifted in some way in this life. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says God has given you things for your joy, to enjoy. So don't feel guilty, enjoy them. Wake up tomorrow morning and see a sunrise and say, thank you, God, that's great. Right? Uh, I'm a huge fan of ginger ale. I don't know why. I'm getting older. I don't know. But, like, I drink ginger ale. Thank you, God. You gave me taste buds. Didn't need those to survive. And you gave them to me. What an occasion for joy. Right? So what occasion do you have for despair? So let's be practical. Okay, practical. How do you have joy in the mundane? How do you do it? Recommendations. Slowing down like a lot. Being still and knowing he's God. Another way. Thanking God and reflecting upon the hope he's given you in himself. For what hope would you have if he didn't give it to you? Remembering that every good gift comes from above and he's given it for your enjoyment. Enjoying friends and laughter and emotion created by God. And the most difficult probably, refusing to compare your life with others. Why do I bring up that up now? I wrote it like maybe 20 minutes ago. Here's why. Paul writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are boasting in who they know. The Corinthian church had been saved by Paul, had been encouraged by Apollos. They had probably met Peter, some of them. And so there's a few different individuals in the church. Follow me here. There's a few groups that are like, I'm a Paul guy. Theological buff, right? Come on. Then you got some other guys. I'm an Apollos guy. Apollos is a much better communicator than Paul. We can actually understand him, right? And then you got a Peter guy. He's the rock. And I've met him, like the Dwayne Johnson of Christianity. He's the guy, and I've met him. And Paul says, okay, first off, we were here for you. And everything is yours. So why are you like so content with us, a servant who just came and has gone? Be really careful to think we're that great. It's really easy to think someone that you see for five minutes is great, right? So are you a joyous person? Are you marked by joy? Is that a fruit that bears witness in your life to who you follow? If you have the spirit of the living God inside of you, you should be. It's the fruit of a life that's been given, not deserved. Of an attorney that's set and not unknown. Of a life that has meaning and purpose, not aimlessly wandering around trying to find itself. So Christian, my encouragement then, being found in Christ and pursuing him is the charge of Paul in Philippians 2. And this is a really unique charge. Here's what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay, this is weird. 
He says, one of the greatest ways that you are a light in a dark world is by not grumbling. Okay? That seems like a low bar until you realize, like, everybody's doing it. And I'm prone to it, too. Man, that guy could have preached a better sermon. He was all over the place, right? Ugh. I've heard better sermons on joy. I've heard better, better sermons on love. Eh, not my favorite Sunday. Not my favorite worship song. Bah, 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 And we join in basically this, the, the, bah. We become like Twitter, right? As a Christian, Philippians 2, you should stand out as the most joyous person in every room. Why? Because everything you believe you deserve, you don't get. And because everything you believe you don't deserve, you get. And for no reason of your own. Eternity freely given at the cost of another person's life. Huh. What occasion do you have for despair? Like, Christian, that is joy that the world cannot come up with and the world cannot compare with. Not close. So the question is, for anyone in this room, do you know that kind of joy? It comes from Jesus. Do people see that kind of joy in your life? Oh, that you would spend time with God, that your joy might be full and radiant. I meet with a group of guys every Thursday, and I have wondered after preparing this message if we should ask in our circle of accountability, and I should persuade you to ask in your circle of accountability. How's your joy? Because our joy is directly linked to our time with God and our reflection upon what he has done for us. Back in August, my, uh, my wife and I announced to our church family back at FBC Tampa, we've been there six years and have loved every minute of it. I mean, there are a few people that were kind of rough, but we've loved every minute of it, right? And we announced to our church family uh, a, a, a sort of desire and calling that was affirmed by the pastors of our church that our church would plant its first church in 33 years. And my wife and I had been praying about it. I, like, I never got into the, like, I want a cool, like, church, like, name this or something like that, right? But I just, like, I, um, I really, like, I wanted to see a church like many other churches, faithfully spending so much time reaching the unreached people group of the college campus in a major university city. Okay? And so we, after a lot of prayer and discernment, chose Knoxville, Tennessee. So we're moving to Knoxville, Tennessee in 2025. And uh, the, the University of Knoxville, Tennessee um, uh, has about 36,000 students. There's 200,000 people that live in Knoxville. And so about one-fifth of the city's population lives on that college campus. I would assume somewhere around 10% or less you know Jesus. 
significantly smaller than the rest of the county. And so what would it look like if we spent one-fifth of our time, energy, effort, and resources, one-fifth to that college campus to reach college students? And then I thought, and this is weird, right? You have to name a church plant. That's a weird thing to do, right? So you start like, like you, this sounds crazy. It's like you name your first kid, unless you just got something. You go to the internet, and there's some weird names, right? Weird names. Random action verb church. Okay, right? So, so I get online, and I'm like, I don't know what to do, right? And so we like had a name in mind, and I was like, probably like a couple weeks later, I was like, we should probably check to make sure there's not a church with that name. We did. There was, and we're friends with them now, and they're supporting us. But um, so we picked a name, and then I, I thought through, okay, like what? should the heartbeat be behind the church? And I'm not here to advocate my church. I just want to share with you a passage of scripture. All of that was to get here. We were studying the book of Acts uh, in church on Sunday morning and Acts 8.8 just stuck out in my mind. Let me explain. Okay, it's great. Of course, I think it's great. It's like our name of our church, right? So Acts 8.8. Gospel has been preached. Peter preached the first spirit-filled sermon Spirit opens the eyes of unbelievers. 3,000 get saved, then more thousands get saved. And then persecution hits in Jerusalem. Many in Jerusalem don't believe. Persecution hits, and then the believers scatter. One guy goes to Samaria. The degenerate people. Right? The people that have the Bible all wrong. The unworthies. Here's what happens. He shares the gospel. Do you know what the text says? It says the city got saved. Huh. Like, I don't know how many people that is, but I would assume that means a lot at least, right? Maybe not everybody, but a lot. It goes on to describe the work of God in that city, and here's what it says, and I'm done. So there was much joy in that city. That's how it describes Samaria. And it's done, and it moves on to something else. So there was much joy in that city. So what would it be like if your prayer this week and following would be, God, would you bring much joy to the University of South Florida? Would it be the most joyous campus in all of the state? And why? Because they know Jesus. Now, you you read the Bible. I've read the Bible. It doesn't seem like everybody's going to get saved. Not even toward the end, there's going to be a lot of people that turn away from God continually. But God is on his throne. What if he saved USF? He saved Samaria. So what if your prayer life looked like, God, would everything I do with joy in my heart be for the joy of this city, the joy of this college campus, the joy of this state, so that it would result in a, a praise that looks like Revelation 7-9. Joining the angels, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Can we be for that kind of joy? Amen, right? I hope you in this room, if you're a person that has never stepped foot in sort of like a religious atmosphere talking about Jesus, and this just feels weird, we're after your joy. We want you to know true joy. Not the thing you've been searching for. So we pray that you would write on that card that you have underneath your chair. I want to learn more about the joy given in Jesus. God, we pray for tonight that you would use it for your glory and for the joy of your people. Would our aim be for right 
joy in the right place so that all people one day, everyone that we have the opportunity to encounter, might join in that song with a glad heart. In your name we pray.